Good morning, Overlake. So fun to see you guys, all you chatterboxes out there. Uh, I'm Pat. I'm one of the pastors on the team here. And in case you're just joining us, we are in the fourth and final week of a series we've been doing called Faith Conversations. And so if you haven't been able to be with us for all of it or or maybe none of it, uh, definitely one worth going online, catching up on. Uh, We've covered some good stuff. Uh, But this reality, faith conversations, they, they can happen just about anywhere. Uh, it can happen if you're commuting somewhere, uh, maybe on the bus or airplane, or, or they can happen at the playground while the kids are playing. It could happen in school, the workplace. Uh, they can happen just about anywhere, even around the dining room table. And it was reminding me of a faith conversation I actually had with someone uh, just a few winters back, and it happened at the Men's Emergency Shelter in Bellevue. I headed over there with a group of Overlake interns. We served a meal, and and I was sitting down, kind of hearing about some of these gentlemen, some of their days, uh, how they've been. And there was one man who asked uh, just where uh, my friends and I were from. And so I shared, oh, we're from a church over in in Redmond called Overlake. And quickly, it sparked a faith conversation. Uh, And and it was pretty also uh, quickly apparent that he was not a big fan of religion. And, and not just of religion, but Christianity was like the bottom of the barrel. And, and so he, he just started sharing his views on, on the Bible. And, and then he gave just a, a great, like, historical analysis of where the church went wrong, like, constantly. The Crusades, the Inquisition, uh, witch trials, like, uh, money-grabbing uh, uh, evangelists, and, and, and it went on and on. And so I'm sitting there, and, and I just felt so ashamed. I, just to be associated with any of that, I just felt so ashamed. And all I could, all I could offer him was just a, a, an authentic and a very sincere, just, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry for all of that and, and more, the things that even didn't get listed. And, and that's where I actually want to start this morning, knowing in a room this size, knowing that there's so many stories where the church has messed up. And, and I don't mean church in the sense of like a building or a structure. I mean the people, people who, who are Christians, for, uh, for, profess to be following Jesus. And, and, and you don't have to go too far to see where we've gone just sideways, off the rails. Uh, uh, Barna, a, a prominent research company, uh, a couple years ago, they went to each of the 50 states and they did this research asking young non-Christians, what's their perception of Christians? And the top three responses were these, in this order too. Anti-gay, judgmental, and hypocritical. And so again, it's just that sobering reality of, man, we have so much baggage. We've just messed up so many times. Uh, as I was doing some reading and kind of some research centered around this topic, and I, by the way, I mentioned kind of in, in the back of your, your, your message notes, four great books to turn to if you want to dive into this deeper. But, but in one of those, the author does some historical calculations, kind of re- doing some research. And what he, what he discovers is in looking at the last thousand years of the Christian tradition, if you were to take the Crusades, the Inquisition, and the Salem Witch Trials and lump those together, the church sadly is responsible for the deaths of somewhere around 200,000 people. 200,000 people. Tragic. And, and, and people, you can get into the context of each of those different things and, and recognize maybe in the Crusades things weren't as white and black as we think they are now. But regardless, 200,000 people losing their lives. So sad. And the same historian then looks at the last hundred years, just the last century, 
And what he does is he looks at the three primary, kind of the largest godless regimes, in Mao, Hitler, Stalin, and they, they themselves are responsible for the deaths of 100 million people. So, and my argument, by the way, is not, hey, look, we're not as horrible as they are. Like, worst argument ever. Like, don't, don't, don't ever quote me on that at all. That's not where I'm going. What I am saying is we have to own where we've messed up. And just how I would never judge an atheist by the likes of those three guys I just had mentioned, I would hope the same discretions used toward, towards us, towards myself in following Jesus. The times where things just went off the rails, that those wouldn't be associated with me and what it looks like to follow Jesus. That in fact, if you are a skeptic, where I would turn you to is first study Jesus himself. Go there. Go to the very start. And it reminds me, just even in saying that, of a job I had. This is uh, eight years ago now. It's crazy to think about. I, I worked at Costco at their headquarters in Issaquah. Uh, go Costco. Always, uh, always. I'm in love with Costco. Anyways, uh, part of my position was, and it was in a season of time where a lot of the bills were changing, the high dollar value bills, so like 20s, 50s, 100s, getting more colorful, more security features. And so we had to get the word out to, to people at the point of sale, the vault clerks, and we sent out these posters, kind of uh, letting them know, here's what the real thing looks like. Here's the authentic $100 bill right here. Don't be confused, because those times where currency's changing is when a lot of fraudulent activity occurs and stuff. And so, so the best way to know what's fake, what's fraudulent, what's not real at all, what's totally phony, is by first being exposed and being, having an intimate knowledge of what, in fact, is the real thing. And I'd say the same thing. First study Jesus and allow that to then influence and inform you as to what part of history has the church got it right in the way of following Jesus' heart, his teaching, his ways. And at what times is it clearly nothing that Jesus was about? In fact, damaging. Not just doing him injustice, but doing great injustice towards others. And so what I want to do is just look at not just the depressing parts of our history. Already, I feel like the mood's like, oh man, glad I came to church this morning. Uh, the fact is, the church has been up to some incredible, some great work. And I would say, actually, the church has fulfilled in many times, in many occasions, uh, uh, really the, the response to one of Jesus' prayers in the garden, the evening, the pr uh, prior to his death. Jesus prays this prayer. And I just want to read two verses in specific out of John 17, verses 20 and 21. And again, I think the church has lived into this at times. Jesus says, I am praying not only for these disciples, talking to those that were following him at the time, uh, the 12, more like the 11. Judas is on his way with the mob. But uh, uh, not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me. That includes us, guys, through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that... The world will believe you sent me. Amen. There have been times, there have been great stretches, great individuals in which have lived this out, have lived in such a way that the world witnessing has come to believe in who Jesus is. Amen. And there's three areas. This isn't going to be exhaustive by any means, but I would like to just kind of address three different areas where the church actually left a great wake of blessing behind. In history. And so the first, if you like taking notes, it'll be the first of the fill-ins, is education. Is education. 
You know, the church's role in education historically, and it's pretty profound. It's pretty incredible. Some people, and I know that there's kind of an incorrect view that some people have, that somehow in the Dark Ages it was Christianity that kind of made Europe more unevolved. Uh, when you picture, like, the peasants, the plagues, like, filthy streets and stuff, that somehow it was, like, religion that was mixed in that, that made it that way and everything. And, and in fact, it's, it's the opposite. Uh, you look at the fall of Rome, which really ushered in this medieval area, this, these dark ages, and it was actually the Christian faith that helped civilize a lot of these barbaric people groups. In fact, if you wanted to go to see where was the classical, kind of the Greco-Roman, like, knowledge and learnings and studies, where were they preserved, you'd go to the monasteries. If you wanted teaching, if you wanted to exchange knowledge and, and, and receive education, you went to the monasteries, to these uh, religious kind of institutions. And, and it was the church, in fact, in that stretch of history, that started schools, primary schools, secondary schools. Some of those secondary schools uh, became more and more and more advanced until you had the likes of Oxford and Cambridge, some of the first universities ever founded by the church. Fast forward even a few more centuries. Look at the start of the Ivy League schools, the Yales, the Princetons, the Harvards, all classical Christian schools. Let me actually read to you the mission statement of Harvard. This is from 1636. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Crazy. Raise your hand if you ever went to school. If you ever went to school. Some of you guys, you really skipped, didn't you? Not every... Uh, think of it, though. Think of how profound education has kind of played a role in your life. The ability to read, to do math, or maybe just to read. Maybe, maybe, maybe you don't remember how to do math. Uh, but think of it, think of just reading, kind of that key that unlocks the ability to learn other things, kind of acquire knowledge and such. The church historically, and even today, has been one of the largest champions, one of the biggest advocates, providers, kind of resourcers for, for education, for, for ensuring education gets to those where it's inaccessible currently. It's been the church. And again, it, it creates a blessing for all who participate, regardless what, what creed, what, what religion, what race you are, what ethnicity, where you live in this world. Education is a great blessing. And I think that right there speaks to even God's strategy in what he would have his followers be as kind of agents of blessing. And we can turn back all the way to Genesis for this. Genesis 12, 2. This is God speaking to Abraham, kind of the father of the faith. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great so that, that's key, so that you will be a blessing. Amen. And it's happened not just with the, the calling of Abraham or the Jewish people, but now the church, now the followers of Christ, choosing to use us as agents of blessing in this world. Amen. So education is one of those areas. A second area that's super profound, and when you start looking, kind of studying history of, of where the church has kind of influenced things and brought great blessing is in medicine and science. So you can uh, jot that down as that second area, medicine and science. Again, there, there, there's kind of this common view maybe had of the church somehow being opposed to scientific uh, discovery or progress. 
And, and granted, the church's history is a bit spotted in this area. Mike, a few weeks ago, reminded us that all truth is God's truth. That, that the times where the church somehow feared some scientific discovery, we just ended up with egg on our face. Like, just totally looked like idiots. But when you look, especially in the Enlightenment, look at what happened here, and you look at just the amount of scientific discovery across so many different disciplines in the scientific community, where did they happen? In Christian nations and Christian schools, many times by Christians who viewed their work as an expression of their faith, an opportunity to more fully experience this God that they worshiped. I have a, a who's who list here of some of the greatest kind of contributors in this area that I'd love to read for you, each of which a professing Christian, Christ follower. You have Copernicus saying the sun is at the center of the universe. I mean, uh, solar system. I did learn something, I promise. Uh, center of the solar system. You have Kepler. He discovered the three major laws of planetary motion. Galileo, he championed Copernicus's work and, and made uh, planetary discoveries of his own through telescope. You have Descartes. He made the important connection between geometry and algebra. Nerd alert. Okay. You have Newton. Work on gravity and the three laws of motion. Pascal, probability theory, and the first successful mechanical calculator. Yes, he made something useful. All right. Ohm discovered one of the most fundamental laws of current electricity. You have Pasteur, who came up with a process of destroying bacteria. And you have Joule, who influenced the first law of thermodynamics. And the list could go on and on. Each of which, some of you would be proud to hear that some of these guys were great homebrewers. And in fact, some of them were actually clergymen themselves. It's amazing to see just the influence of the Christian faith again, even in the scientific community. Reminding us that faith and reason, they're somehow not combative, but they're harmonious. They're connective. And we must be reminded of that. And then you can go, not just from scientific discoveries, but even look at the current uh, kind of context, the vast networks of, of hospitals, of the, of the medical community, uh, many with Methodist or Lutheran or Catholic roots, kind of built from that heart of Christ, of compassion, to enter in, to be near those who are sick, to bring healing. Even the way our, our, our health system kind of works here in a, in a North American sense is quite interesting and distinct. I'll, I'll actually read uh, a letter. I got this in an email from an overlaker who was just recently in Lebanon, and he needed medical attention. And here's his account. Here's what he learned. Here's his perspective that, that I would like to share with you. He shares, my hospital experience in Lebanon was spectacular. We went to the emergency and were admitted without filling out any paperwork. Went to ICU without paying anything up front, received extraordinary care, and the entire bill was $2,000. Come to find out, it is a Christian hospital. I was given VIP treatment through no fault of my own. I love that. The model in Lebanon and in most countries of the world is that you pay cash up front before you get through the front door. No money, tough luck. Our North American model is because of our Christian background and we have no idea how rare it is. It's profound. I think, again, just the context in which we are, are living our lives in. It's great to pull back and look at kind of the history that's kind of, kind of had an influence into that. You can even look at just as, as disasters strike around the world, huge organizations that sweep in are faith-based, have a Christian kind of a founding to them, whether it's the Red Cross or Medical Teams International, Convoys for Hope, 
uh, Samaritans first, all, all kinds of them. I was reading, it was like a week after Hurricane Harvey hit, USA Today reported that 80% of the aid received of the response was from the faith-based community. And it's incredible that just, again, that heart uh, for compassion is what has really kind of carried this forward, which has created these organizations, and that we've been living those out. And again, I, I feel like after, after kind of cheering us on in some areas, I do want to be honest and say there's been times where we totally have not gotten this right. It reminds me of a video I saw recently. It's like we come so close, and yet we just miss it. It's like, uh, uh, maybe you've seen this, it's this dog that, uh, that, that, that gets tossed these like opportunities to, 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 to catch something and just misses. And, it, and we're like, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. Oh man, crusades, just missed it. Okay, right here, big fat, right in my eyes, stay focused. Oh, which trials? Again. Okay, got this one, no problem. We totally have this one coming right in our sights. Stay focused. Oh man, Inquisition. Like, we just can't get it right. And even when it's all there, we just fail miserably. Maybe catching just a piece. Guys, perhaps, perhaps we've missed it. But I do think there are times where just like a golden retriever, we've been loyal, we've been loving, we've been the source of great joy. And so if nothing else, just be reminded, you, church, you're just like a golden retriever. Beautiful, loving, loyal. Well, the third area that I'd like to, to unpack here that the church has had an incredible amount of influence in, and again, leaving a wake of blessing behind, is the fact that we've, we've done great work when it comes to human rights. Human rights. And that's that third example that I'd like to give you. I think sometimes it's hard for us to remember just how different things were. We've gotten so used to the norms in which we live in that we forget, not even that long ago, 100 years ago even, uh, how different things looked. Not even that far back ago. It's crazy. I, like, uh, the church was involved in helping reform what child labor looked like. Kind of bringing some common sense that kids belong in school, not making tiny little things and getting paid small wages. And it's a fight we still fight across the world. You could even look at just this like dichotomy, like this double standard when it comes to, to gender issues. That, that throughout the large part of history, women have been treated as kind of like second tier, second status, limited worth, limited opportunities. And still there's cultures that are living that out in their reality. Men caught, caught in the act of adultery, kind of let off the hook. Meanwhile, the woman beaten, shamed, sometimes killed. When you look at Christianity, and it, it kind of brought uh, reins, it kind of, kind of, kind of reined in this, this, this double standard that existed by prohibiting adultery and even in matters of divorce. In the Roman world, it's interesting, they kind of scorned Christianity because of how highly valued women were in marriage and in prominent leadership roles in the church. They deemed it as a religion for the women. It's so interesting to recognize this. And, and each time it's been, it has been, the, the church recognizing that, that things need to change. You can even look at slavery. Look at the late 18th century as this movement in Europe begins. In Great Britain, William Wilberforce kind of being on the, the, the most prominent uh, individual in this. that kind of carries throughout Europe and then finally finds its way across the waters here to the U.S. 
where the whole southern region, the economic engine, is spurred by slavery. And again, this is where the church's past is, is quite checkered when you recognize you had two different camps, each pointing to the authority of Scripture. Some pointing to the fact that slavery existed even in Christ's time, and it's just a way, it's just the way it is. Another side, appealing more to the heart of God, even going clear back to Exodus, saying, uh, you have Moses going down to Pharaoh saying, let my people go. You have Jesus who's come here on earth to set the captives free. Here's a Savior. How, how is it possible one person can possess another? And again, it's traced back to this reality that we have a deep understanding of human dignity. Going all the way back to the first chapter, of the Bible in Genesis 1, 27. It's on your outlines again. So God created mankind in his own image. Imago Dei, kind of that, that Latin term. And the image of God is bestowed each and every individual. And each should be treated as such. We read a few verses earlier from Christ's prayer in the garden. Again, that night before his death. And I'd love to read a couple more that follow a few uh, verses later, starting in verse 25, Jesus again saying, O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. One thing I think is beautiful is not just the fact of Jesus saying he will be in us, but the fact that he will continue to reveal the Father to us. Kind of a uh, $10 theological term is just progressive revelation. That, that throughout all of history, we have a widening perspective of God's heart in issues. Of just how profound this human dignity issue is across all culture, all time. Of how just it, it warrants that things must change, laws must be rewritten, systems must be demolished. That the work continues, church. That we continue to lean into these justice-minded issues. I'd love to share with you a short story from Scripture of, of Jesus' ministry. And I think part of it is, is good for us to be reminded that this isn't just easy work. That not everybody's just on board. That, this, that, that, that work that calls us to human dignity is quite difficult, in fact. And so what I'd like to do is read, this is out of Matthew chapter 8. I'd like to read this from you, starting in verse 28. It says, When Jesus arrived on the other side of the lake in the region of the Gadarenes, Two men who were possessed by demons met him. They came out of the tombs and were so violent that no one could go through that area. They began screaming at him, Why are you interfering with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding in the distance. So the demons begged, If you cast us out, send us into that herd of pigs. All right, go, Jesus commanded them. So the demons came out of the men and entered the pigs, and the whole herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town, telling everyone what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the entire town came out to meet Jesus, but they begged him to go away and leave them alone. Interesting story. Jesus comes, he's traveling, comes to an area where no one passes through. Totally dangerous. Two crazy demon-possessed guys who live among the tombs. In another gospel, uh, the writer uh, also reminds us they were naked. So, I mean, don't picture that. Just know that. But two crazy men amongst the graves, demon-possessed. 
And here's Jesus. And these demons, they know the power dynamic in play. They know they are well under the authority of Christ. They even speak to the fact that there's an appointed time where they're going to meet their end. And so here's Jesus who meets them. And they say, okay, okay, okay. If you're going to cast us out, uh, how about that herd of pigs? Just send us over to the herd of pigs. And I love Jesus. He's like, go, you know, just done. Goes into a herd of pigs, crazy herd, demonic pigs, picture that, super crazy, don't know what that'd be like, but they end up trampling all the way off the edge of a cliff, drowned in the water. So a bunch of bacon just lost for the year, super sad. Herdsmen, totally out of a job, on the spot, right? Lost their herds, they rush into town. They tell the whole town, so they tell everyone right there in the town what had happened to these two demon-possessed men. The entire town, everyone drops what they're doing. Everyone's shocked, wide-eyed. Okay, we got to come check out what's happening. The whole town comes to where Jesus is now at, where this miracle has just taken place. By then, I picture these men finally kind of put some clothes on. Uh, and here is where, instead of them welcoming Jesus and saying, man, if you can tackle those issues, we got a lot more that could use your touch. If it's just going to cost us a few parts of our economy, if we're going to have to just change a few systems, we'll figure it out. But man... Human dignity is worth it. They didn't have that attitude at all. Instead, they tell Jesus to go his own way, not even welcomed. Here, they care more about a herd of pigs than they do the being, the well-being of two men who, when Jesus saw them, saw a justice issue in play. Two men being robbed of their potential, of their identity and what they've been made, who they've been made. And he meets that right where it's at. And so as change takes place, in this, in this work towards human dignity, it means things must be abolished. Laws must be rewritten. It, it, it leads to, to, to form systemic changes, kind of the systems of racism being demolished. It leads to the 40 million slaves around the world, which, by the way, is the most there's ever been at any point in history. It means that they be freed. Anyone being robbed of the human dignity that they're owed, it means it's restored. And that is the work that we're called into. And so what I'd like to do is just kind of end with just a challenge for the church, for all of us, for anyone that'd be listening to this that's a follower of Jesus. And it's simple. It's so simple, but it's profound. And it's simply this, just be more like Jesus, right? Total duh, like, like yeah, that's why we come to church. That's like what it's all about. And yet we need to be reminded of it. We can't forget that that is what we are called to, to, to continue to aim towards, Anytime the church has gone off the rails, it's because Jesus has not been at the forefront. And we live in extreme times. I, I, I love what Martin Luther King Jr. says. This is one of my favorite quotes. He says, so the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? Anytime the church has gone off kilter, we've been extremists for something other than love. Many times power, influence, politics type stuff. And yet it's love that we're called to champion. It's love that Christ has called us into. It's love that he says we will be known as his followers. As he says in John 13, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That if reminds us that it is a choice, that it is something we, we can do, have the capability of, but it also means that, that there's times where, where we have uh, the opportunity to not, and we've explored those areas. 
But it wasn't by the sword that the Christian faith became this unstoppable movement back in the Roman Empire. It was through just outlandish acts of love, of compassion. The last pagan emperor, Julian was his name, he's quoted as saying this. He says, they, speaking of the Christians, they support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. And he tried to actually mobilize the pagan priests. Hey, imitate what the Christians are doing. It seems to be working. Let's create a little bit of a revival amongst our many gods. And it didn't even work. The fact that the church was so hyper-focused on the mission they've been given by Jesus is what led to it being really an irresistible revolution. And the same is true throughout other parts of history. Even the bubonic plague, as it kind of swept through communities, towns get sick, people flee, which just made the disease spread all the more. Uh, there were some people that, that stayed put, Christians that said, you know what? I think Christ would be right here in the midst of the mess, right amongst the sick and the dying. St. Catherine of Siena being one that would, would tend to the needs of those in the community still. And you can go throughout other parts of history. I even look, we spent time as a team actually just reflecting on this reality of, of just how proud we are of the church family here. We had so many names come to mind, stories to share, examples of, of those of you that have been living this out, that have been a great, a beautiful example of what the church is to be. A few that I just jotted down. Danny, who writes encouraging letters. He, he corresponds, he befriends the prisoner. I was singing to Tomico, uh, Tomico and Amy just this last week, kind of coordinating uh, some meals for, for a couple families who are just going through some, some crazy times in, the, in their lives. I was thinking of Josh. Uh, back in 2008, getting along together with a few friends to start something that, that, that in fact, has ended up raising close to a million dollars to fight slavery. Climb for Captives is this whole uh, thing where they kind of scale uh, the local summits in an effort to bring in awareness and funds to fight human trafficking. Dawn and Charlotte walking alongside those experiencing incredible grief. I can look out and even see, just kind of recognize some of the adoptive families in here having such heart for the orphaned. To not just open up homes, but lives, hearts. And the list can go on and on and on. I remember a friend telling me, he heard a pastor say this one time, and I think it's so true. Good thing Jesus wasn't too worried about his safety, or he would have never left heaven. And just as Jesus has been that role model for us, we must again put him front and center to become more like him. And what he's left us is this beautiful rhythm that we call communion. Instituted again, as we've kind of reflected a few times now, on that, that last night before his execution on a cross. As he's sitting around having a feast with his disciples, breaking bread, telling them, this is my body which is broken for you. Pouring out wine into a cup, letting them know, hey, this is my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And so every time we get to enter into this, it's a reminder of that great cost that Jesus paid and what we too are called into. What I'd like to do is ask you to stand with me in this moment because soon we will be entering back into worship and have an opportunity to partake of communion. We have stations in the middle, the front, the back, and as you come to the table, 
I'd like to encourage you to remember two things. First, what it is that we're being reminded of, of what these elements signify. Christ laying down his life for us, for this world. What it cost him. And the second thing I think to be reminded of is the fact that we are invited to live into that similar posture. A posture of, 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 of laying down our lives for others. Of a selflessness. Jesus, when he was with his disciples after conquering the grave, in his resurrected form, he speaks these words at the end of John. He says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So again, as we come forward with an opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper of Communion, be reminded of what he's done for you and what he's invited you into. And that's to be the church. And that means to be and to look more and more like him. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the truth found, not just in Scripture, but in the lives of those that we can study that have gone before us in our faith, those that have truly lived their lives after your heart, your ways, your teachings. And I just pray the same for, for each of us in this space, Lord, that we, that we would kind of walk into that invitation that you extend, that we would begin to see what it means to be sent out just as you were, of what it looks like to love this world as you do. And so equip us and fill us by your spirit. In your name, amen. Mm-hmm.